Good morning. Once again, my name is Natalie Cole from the marketing team at Dickerson Insurance Services. We're very happy you could join us for today's webinar titled Everything You Need to Know About ERISA But We're Afraid to Ask. Before I introduce today's presenter, I want to let you know that we welcome your questions. Please enter them in the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen, and we will answer them at the conclusion of this presentation. Today's presenter is Marilyn Monahan. She is the owner of the Monahan Law Office in Marina Del Rey. Marilyn focuses her practice on advising employers and consultants on compliance with employee benefit and insurance laws, including ACA, ERISA, HIPAA, and COBRA. So Marilyn, how are you this morning? I'm good, Natalie, how are you? I'm good, thank you for asking. So shall we get started? Yes, we shall. <laughs> Let me give um, the attendees a, a few additional housekeeping items um, to bring to your attention. So um, this is program for which we are offering California Continuing Education Program for California Licensed Accident and Health Brokers to obtain that credit, you need to provide your um, license number, which I believe you did when you registered. You need to participate for an hour and you need to complete all three of the poll questions that we have included. If you don't complete all three of the poll questions, you can't get CE credit, unfortunately. So I wanna welcome you all here this morning on this very important topic about um, ERISA compliance. So, um, and by the way, uh, we will provide a, a copy of the presentation if you would like one. So what we're going to talk about here today is why does compliance matter to get the ball rolling? And then we're going to get into the details about ERISA compliance. I'm going to define what ERISA is and when it applies and who has to be concerned about it. And then I'm going to focus on the reporting and disclosure requirements for health and welfare benefit plans. So these are ERISA's documentation requirements as well as their reporting requirements, which is the Form 5500 filing obligation. So I'm gonna go through what you're required to have, what you're required to distribute. Then we're gonna talk about foreign language requirements um, for these documents. Do you have to um, translate all or part of the documents and under what circumstances? Then I'm gonna talk about how to reach your audience. And those are the ERISA distribution rules. How do you distribute uh, the documentation to uh, your participants and beneficiaries and remain in compliance with ERISA. I'm going to talk about open enrollment because that is the key time of year when documentation is usually disclosed and distributed. I've got some tips and traps. At the very end, I've got some resources and checklists. I'm not going to walk through the resources and checklists because I think they're self-explanatory and uh, we're under, going to be under a bit of a time constraint, but they will be there for your reference and then we'll take some questions. So we're going to start off with our first poll. Natalie, if you will launch the poll. And the poll is open. So all of you who want CE credit and anyone else who wants to participate, please respond to the poll. The question is, who is responsible for ERISA compliance? A, the insurance company, B, the broker, C, the employer, or D, none of the above? So I'll give you a few more minutes to get your vote in. A few more seconds, I should say, not a few more minutes. And uh, Natalie, let's close up the poll. 
And if you could share the poll results, I actually am not seeing the poll results. Um, um, I see. Would you like for me to go ahead and tell you the results? Yeah, that would be great. Okay, no problem. I'm not seeing them this time. No problem. 91% um, says employer, 6% says broker, 3% voted insurer, and 1% voted none of the above. I am really happy with those results because that means you people all, and most of you understand what the responsibilities are and that gets us, puts us in a good place to get started through this presentation. It is the employer who is ultimately and legally responsible for compliance with ERISA. So let's talk about why compliance matters. Well, the first reason is it is an employer obligation. Um, and the reason it's very important to start off with is because it's the law. Uh, federal law requires you to comply with ERISA, and it's also a fiduciary responsibility. Um, and we'll talk about who is the plan fiduciary, and uh, that and uh, that individual or entity is responsible for compliance with ERISA. And failure to comply with ERISA as a fiduciary could result in a participant lawsuit for breach of fiduciary duty. But it's also important to comply because if you don't comply, if you don't, for example, get the documentation out or if the documentation that you're required to have under ERISA is not clearly written, then you're going to have participant confusion. They're not going to understand what their benefits are. They're not going to understand what their obligations are. The HR department may not understand what their obligations are and how to administer the plan. And all of that can result in employee complaints. Employee complaints, if they're not resolved to the satisfaction of the employee, could result in participant lawsuits. If you don't follow the rules and you have a self-funded plan, it could mean that the stop-loss carrier can deny coverage. If participants do complain to the Department of Labor, that could be followed up by um, an audit by the Department of Labor. And I will tell you that once they audit your health and welfare plan, they, they generally move on to your retirement plan. So it opens up a lot more work and, and uh, challenges for the HR department as well as the broker. And of course, any failure to comply can also result in penalties. But I also want to indicate even if um, there's another circumstance where it's important that you have all your ducks in a row, and that is what if your company goes through a merger and an acquisition? The lawyers for the other side are going to start digging around in your files. And if they find that you're, something is missing and it might result in potential penalties or complaints or confusion or whatever, that might become an issue in the merger and the acquisition. And that doesn't look good for any of the parties involved. So if the HR department or the broker wanna look like a hero to the CEO or the CFO, then you wanna make sure that you have all the documentation lined up and ready to go in those circumstances because you don't want to have the lack of those materials become an issue when the sale is going through. Now a big question I get is what is the producer's role in all of this? Um, because it is the employer's legal responsibility to have this, these materials and to comply with the law but they very often turn to the broker and ask the broker for assistance and that is really the producer's role to provide assistance, to be a value add um, an important partner in this process to um, help point them in the right direction, provide them with the resources they need, help them gather the documentation, and um, be an assistant to them to make certain that they um, are uh, aware of what their obligations are and um, that they fall, well, it's ultimately their responsible, responsibility to follow through on it. 
keep in mind that as a producer, to the extent that you promise to um, fulfill a responsibility, you will be on the hook if you fail to do so. So if you say to your employer client, I will make certain you are compliant, then you need to make certain they are compliant or you could find yourself um, facing liability down the road. I would also remind you that ERISA compliance may not be covered by your errors and omissions policy. So you can be a facilitator and an assistant and um, help with the process, but ultimately it is the employer's obligation. I also just wanted to sort of set the stage. Um, one of the things you'll see that I'm going to talk about here a lot this morning, because it comes up a lot in ERISA, is the documentation requirements. And the reason the documentation requirements are important is because this is how you let your participants and beneficiaries know what's available to them under the plan. Um, employers spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of thought, and a, a lot of money putting together um, a good benefits package that they think will um, benefit their employees. And having done so, they want to make certain that they communicate that in the appropriate way so that the employees get the most value out of it. Just a little reminder, um, we've got some survey information. I focused here on the MetLife annual survey. This one, uh, the information on this slide goes back a couple of years. That's because they don't ask the same questions every year, but I still know from the trends I've seen over the years that this data seems very, remains very valid. And that is that 80% of employers say benefits play an important role in building and sustaining workplace culture. Six in 10 employees say benefits were an important reason they chose a job. But interestingly, only four in 10 employees strongly believe their employer's benefits communication is simple to understand. As a result, only half of employees are very confident they made the right decisions during open enrollment season. So um, that's, uh, that's something, that's a point, that the lack of simplicity, the lack of um, clear communication can be a factor in um, an employee's ability to make the right decision when the time comes during open enrollment. So I think we should keep that in mind as we work our way through this program today. A few other things. Um, what a surprise. Two and three employees stated at the beginning of last year when the pandemic started, they were feeling more stressed than they did feel before the pandemic. But I also wanted to jump down to the most recent survey, which says that employees who say their employer offers a benefit package that meets their needs are 41% more likely to feel, I'm missing an L there, feel resilient and 60% more likely to trust their employer's leadership. And what do employees want from their benefits? 82% they want say they want benefits to be easy to use and 78% want benefits that work together. And then finally, um, I wanted to mention that seven in 10 employees want to hear from their employer about benefits after they've already signed up. So they don't want a communication to occur just as at open enrollment, but also throughout the year. So they have reminders about what their benefit plans are, what they offer, and how to best utilize them. And interestingly, 80% of employers said that they are increasing their budget for benefit communications or intend to do so. Now, another thing to keep in mind as we go through this presentation, not only is ease of use, but as we all know, because we're a little over a year into the COVID-19 pandemic, the pandemic is affecting the way in which we conduct open enrollment. So there are different things that we need to think about, not only the things that we emphasize during open enrollment, like vaccines and preventive care 
and um, urgent care facilities, and of course, telehealth, but also how we conduct enrollment, whether that's going to be um, over Zoom or um, video chats or uh, electronically. So it has um, changed things up a bit. So let's get into the nuts and bolts of ERISA compliance. The first question is, what is ERISA? ERISA is an acronym. It stands for the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974. So it goes back a fair way. Um, and the agency charged with administering ERISA is the Federal Department of Labor. And within the Federal Department of Labor, the specific agency that oversees ERISA is the Employee Benefits Security Administration. So you might see EBSA or DOL on some of the documentation. ERISA is a federal law. And it, what it does is it regulates employer-sponsored pension plans and employee welfare benefit plans, whether fully insured or self-funded. So it doesn't regulate individual coverage. It only regulates group coverage, and it does apply to both pension plans and health and welfare benefit plans. We're going to focus on the health and welfare benefit plans today. And whether the plan is fully insured or self-funded, the employer um, is subject to ERISA and must meet ERISA's requirements. There are some plans that are exempt from ERISA, state and local government plans, church plans, workers' compensation, and plans maintained outside of the United States for non-resident aliens. Now note that certain other federal laws like the Affordable Care Act and HIPAA, for example, don't accept state and local government plans. They have to comply with other federal benefit laws, but they don't have to comply with um, ERISA. There is another exemption under ERISA uh, the, under the voluntary safe harbor for voluntary benefits, and I'll talk about that in a couple of slides. The federal government, when it passed ERISA, one of the provisions built into it was that it preempted state law. This, that means that state legislatures cannot pass laws mandating that employers um, offer benefits or include certain provisions in their benefit plans. But they carved out an exception to that exemption, that, that preemption provision. And they said that the state can continue to um, administer insurance law. So the states continue to have jurisdiction over insurance companies and HMOs. So as an example of that, what that really means is the California insurance laws still remain in effect. Um, and how they apply is a state legislature, although they can't pass a mandate on employers with regard to the employer's benefit plan, they can pass a mandate on insurance companies and HMOs. So they can't say, Mr. Employer, you must provide maternity benefits for all of your employees. But what they can do is they can say, Mr. Insurance Company, you can't sell a policy in the state of California unless you provide maternity benefits to everyone who's covered. So an employer that wants to avoid those state mandates would self-fund because um, the uh, state's jurisdiction only extends to fully insured plans and HMOs, but it does not apply to self-funded plans. So there's a few defined terms under ERISA I wanted to mention. The first is the plan sponsor. That's basically another term for employer. Also the plan administrator. That's also in most single employer plans, that's also going to be the employer. It's just another name for the employer. 
A plan administrator is important because the plan administrator is a fiduciary. And as you, if you were to sit down and read through the ERISA law as well as the regulations, most of the obligations fall on the plan administrator. So it will say the plan administrator must do the following. It's, this is not the same as a third party administrator uh, that you might hire to assist with administration. Um, that's a service provider, a vendor who's providing services to you under a contract. That's not the same as the plan administrator under ERISA. The plan administrator is usually the employer. A third party administrator, a TPA, is a service provider who provides services to you by contract. Um, we are talking about uh, employee welfare benefit plans. So ERISA applies to pension as well as employee welfare benefit plan, which is defined as an employer-sponsored plan that provides benefits such as medical, surgical, or hospital care, or benefits in the event of sickness, accident, disability, death, or unemployment, or prepaid legal services. And on the next slide, I've got some examples of what uh, types of plans are subject to ERISA. Under ERISA, a participant, an employee who is participating in the plan is called a participant and the covered uh, dependent, whether spouse or child is called a beneficiary. The plan name, uh, ERISA requires plans to have a plan name. Now this is not the same as say the Kaiser HMO bronze plan. This is a name that is assigned by the plan administrator to the package of benefits the employer is offering. So if the, if the employer is called Golf Corporation, uh, the employer might call its uh, plan the Golf Corporation Employee Welfare Benefit Plan. If you've ever filled out a Form 5500, you know that you have to have a plan name and this gets recorded in the Form 5500. And I have an example of that later on as well. You also have to have a plan number for health and welfare benefit plans. They start numbering at plan 501. And then if you have more than one plan, they go on to 502, 503, and so forth. Plan must have a plan year, which must be 12 months in length. My examples here today, I'll use a calendar year plan example of January 1 through December 31. All of these details, all of these defined terms will be outlined in the Form 5500 if you're required to file one, as well as in the wrap document for the plan, which I will also talk about. So some examples of some various plans or benefits that qualify or are subject to ERISA, health, dental, vision, a health FSA, that's an important one to know about, a health reimbursement arrangement, some EAPs and some wellness programs if they provide medical benefits. I mentioned that voluntary plans are exempt. Many employers offer what we call voluntary benefits. If they fall under the Department of Labor exemption, then they are not considered ERISA plans. You would not include them in the wrap document. They would not generally be treated as a group contract um, that would be subject to COBRA or other federal laws. So in order to qualify as a true voluntary benefit, they must meet the Department of Labor's safe harbor requirements. These are that there can be no employer contributions, participation in is voluntary. The employer does not endorse the program, such as by calling it the Golf Corporation uh, LTD plan or something like that. But the employer may publicize and collect premiums through payroll deductions. And finally, the employer cannot receive consideration in the form of cash or otherwise for offering the benefit. 
Now, the real heart of the uh, discussion here today are the ERISA disclosure requirements, which are basically the documentation requirements. These are um, the documents that have to be produced and in some cases distributed to participants. And I break this down into four different pieces of the pie. I'm going to talk about first the plan document requirement, then the summary plan description or the SPD, then the summary of benefits and coverage or SBC, and then the annual notices requirement. So this is the question I get all the time. The HMO gave us an evidence of coverage. That's all we need, right? Well, unfortunately, that's not correct. The evidence of coverage is a very important plan document. It needs to be distributed to participants, but it doesn't provide all the additional terms and conditions that ERISA requires. So it's an essential document, but it's not the end of the story. The first thing that you need to know is that ERISA requires that every plan have a written plan document. This is different from the summary plan description. There are actually two separate documentation requirements in the ERISA law. So the plan document is the legal document which establishes and maintains the plan and it governs the plan. Um, it contains certain terms that are specifically mandated by ERISA. So ERISA says in the statute, every plan document, you must have a plan document and every plan document must include the following elements. Those elements are almost never, 99.9% .9 of the time, if not 100% of the time, included in the insurance company's documents. So we're gonna talk later about wrap documents, which is how you supplement the materials provided by the insurance companies to ensure that you have all the documents that all the material, all the language required by the ERISA plan document requirement. Now, the plan document is often what they say uh, written in the language of lawyers. That's actually a quote from the United States Supreme Court. Um, it can be written in, sometimes uh, in legalese because it is sort of the legal document that establishes and maintains the plan. But that also means it's not the most effective communication piece for participants. Now, you do not have to distribute the plan document, and no one really does at open enrollment. But instead, if someone actually asks for a copy of it, and they sometimes do, you do have to provide a copy of it upon request within 30 days. And if you don't, you could pay a penalty. So you don't distribute it up front, but if someone asks you for a copy of it, you have 30 days to provide it to them. Interestingly, there is no plan, small plan exemption for the plan document. A lot of um, employers think that because there's a small plan exemption under the Form 5500 requirement, there's also a small plan exemption for the plan document, but that is not in fact the case. And I will tell you, um, the other reason to have it, uh, one, it's the law, two, a participant may ask for it, and you've got 30 days to produce it, and one of the and the third reason is because if you ever get audited by the Department of Labor, it's usually the first or second item on the checklist that they send to you saying these are all the documents we want. So they will ask for it. And that point you really do need to have it. So if you don't distribute the plan document to participants, what do you distribute? And the answer to that is the summary plan description or the SPD. If the plan document is written in the language of lawyers, what the SPD is intended to be is a summary of um, the plan terms 
which under the rules is supposed to be written in a manner calculated to be understood by the average plan participant. According to the Supreme Court, the objective should be clear, simple communication. In addition to being clear and simple and a summary, the SPD shall be sufficiently accurate and comprehensive to reasonably apprise participants and beneficiaries of their rights and obligations under the plan. And we all know that meeting those two standards, being simple to understand and accurate and comprehensive, usually means that SPDs run close to 100 pages. Um, but uh, that's what generally what, what it takes in order to meet all of the legal requirements. The Department of Labor has issued a whole series of regulations which explain um, certain terms and conditions by which you should produce and, and draft the SPD. For example, there are style and format regulations. And those regulations, uh, they are the ones that emphasize that the uh, SPD shall be written in a manner calculated to be understood by the average plan participant. They suggest using examples. They suggest using highlighting and different fonts and so forth so that um, uh, participants can easily find information and can understand what falls under what category versus another category. The courts will look at things like, do you have too many amendments to your SPD? If you've got a whole slew of amendments attached, it might be difficult for a participant to dig through them all to try to figure out what the terms and conditions are. They also talk about things like, don't put, um, uh, all the plan benefits in large type and then all the exclusions in small type. They want you, the, the SPD should be clear, accurate, comprehensive, and not misleading. There are content regulations. There are certain items that you have to include in the SPD, and we'll talk about that on the next slide. There are also foreign language requirements. There are times in which you have to provide a notice in a translated language to your participants that they can get assistance in that language. And later in the presentation, we'll talk about what those circumstances are and specifically what kind of notice that you need to give. And finally, once you've put together a compliant SPD, it has to be distributed to participants and beneficiaries. And there are rules on that, which we will also talk about. Um, the methodologies that you can use um, under the rules and which ones work best um, for example, you can distribute them in person, by mail, or electronically. All of these distribution rules must be created in order to be reasonably calculated to ensure actual receipt. You have to make sure you actually get them to the employees. But we'll again talk about that later in the presentation. So to give you an example of some of the items that have to be included because of the SPD content regulations, you have to identify the plan name, the plan number, plan 501, the plan year. You have to specify the employer name and address and the name and address of the plan administrator, the employer's tax ID number, the source of contributions, eligibility terms, which carriers often leave out these days. Um, the employer has to supplement their plan, the carrier's materials to add eligibility terms, the waiting period, and the statement of ERISA rights. So these are some of the elements that you are required to include in your SPD, but you will recognize are typically not included in the carrier's documentation. So again, you're going to have to supplement that EOC you get from the HMO and to provide that additional language that is required by ERISA. And how do you do that? You do that through the RAP process. 
So I've referred now to the wrap documents a couple of times. So what precisely is a wrap document? A wrap document is a methodology to provide the additional terms that are required by ERISA, but which are not included in the carrier's documentation. So um, that's one of the key reasons why you need a wrap document. You supply that additional language. How this works is you have an additional document called the wrap. You add into that additional document all the terms and conditions that are not included in the carrier's documents, the plan year, the tax ID, the plan number, those kinds of elements. And then you incorporate by reference. You wrap around all of the carrier's documents. So you've got the wrap incorporating all the carrier's documents, and then the entire package, wrap plus carrier's document, becomes the summary plan description or SPD, and the entire package gets distributed to participants. When you're drafting the wrap, remember that although one of your key goals is to add the terms that ERISA requires, you can also be proactive. If there are some terms, additional terms, that are important to the administration of the plan, um, you can add those as well. So um, you can talk about, for example, you can clarify how medical loss ratio rebates will be distributed. You can, um, you can uh, specify the ability of the plan administrator to amend or terminate the plan at any time and so forth. And finally, the wraps are also important as you'll see later on when we talk about the Form 5500. The uh, wrap documents assist with, plan with Form 5500 planning and filing, which we will also talk about. So here's an example of a, uh, for a wrap SPD. And our, we're going to start off today using the example of Golf Corporation. And Golf Corporation has created the Employee Welfare Benefit Plan, or Plan 501. And in creating the wrap, Golf has two goals, to satisfy ERISA's content regulation requirement and to combine all the benefits it offers into one plan for Form 5500 purposes. Under our facts, Golf Corporation offers its employees a fully insured health plan, a fully insured dental plan, and a fully insured vision plan. They have a waiting period of one month following the date of hire. Employees who work 30 hours or more on average are eligible for coverage. Under the Affordable Care Act, Golf uses a 12-month look-back measurement period for uh, variable hour employees. Golf also distributes each year a contribution or rate schedule at open enrollment, so employees know how much it's going to cost them. And Golf Corporation's broker also distributes at open enrollment a benefit summary with all of the annual notices. So these eligibility terms, the waiting period, the 30 hours a week, and the 12-month look-back measurement period are probably not contained in the insurance company's documents. So if you want to be clear to employees as to when they're eligible for coverage, these terms have to be added through the wrap process. So here's a graphic that I've created. So you've got your wrap SPD, and you incorporate into that for the health benefit plan, the EOC and the SBC provided by the carrier, the dental EOC, the vision EOC, as well as the contribution schedule, any benefit summaries you may have, and all the annual notices. And then that entire package, all that documentation, becomes the SPD that is distributed to participants. Now there's 
one additional documentation requirement that I wanted to mention, which is the newest one on our list, um, and that's the Summary of Benefits and Coverage, or the SBC. This mandate was created by the Affordable Care Act. It didn't exist before the ACA. And the goal of the SBC is to be a simple and concise explanation of benefits through which um, employees can compare, uh, let's say for an employer offering an HMO and a PPO, they can compare what their deductible expenses would be, what their co-pays, what their co-insurance would be, and so forth, depending on which option they choose. The SBC only applies to the major medical plan. Your dental and your vision carriers, for example, do not have to produce an SBC. If you've got a fully insured plan, the carrier will produce the SBC, distribute it to the employer, and then the employer distributes it to participants and beneficiaries. But if you've got a self-funded plan, the employer, the plan administrator, is required is responsible for putting together that SBC. Now, this is something you might be able to contract out, and your TPA might perform that service for you, but the responsibility rests with the employer. There is a foreign language requirement connected with the SBC, just as there is for the SPD, which I'll walk you through. A little reminder that as of this year, new templates are in place for the SBC. Every few years, they update their templates, and there's a new one that should be in use on or after January 1. There is a pretty hefty fine for failure to distribute the SBC. It's $1,190 per participant. And a little compliance tip, the SBC is actually a very helpful tool to use for 4980H uh, ACA penalty compliance. So uh, because it specifies if the plan is MEC or minimum value. So you can use the SBC to establish for the IRS or the Department of Health and Human Services, this plan is MEC, this plan is minimum value. I've satisfied that requirement under the 4980H rules. So this is a screenshot of what the first page of the uh, SBC template looks like. I've added the yellow arrows to highlight certain issues. I just wanted to mention uh, this is just a mock-up that the Department of Health and Human Services created, so it's not for a real plan. But up in the left-hand corner, that's where the insurance company would put the name of the plan, like the Kaiser Bronze HMO, something, the, the Blue Shield Silver Value Plan, something along that line. It's a good idea to use the name from the SBC in all related plan materials. So to repeat that name that's used in the SBC in the rate sheet, in the benefit summary, in the waiver forms, in the enrollment forms. And that's so that if you ever get audited, um, then you can show very clearly to the regulators that this is the, our lowest cost plan, this is the name we're using, and they can tie all the pieces of the puzzle together about what different employees signed up for, what the cost was, and so forth. Few more yellow arrows I added. This is where on the mock-up it shows whether the plan is minimum value or MEC. And then the last arrow is has to do with language assistance services, which we'll talk about when we get to the foreign language section. But you see those taglines in the four different foreign languages. Um, we're going to talk about um, what those are all about when we get to, we get to that section of the presentation. If you do amend the plan, you don't necessarily have to create a new SB, SPD, but you can, um, or you can attach an amendment to the SPD. Uh, normally, you have um, 
210 days after the end of the planned year in order to provide and distribute that amendment. Obviously, it's not a good idea to wait that long after the amendment takes effect to distribute it. If it is a reduction in benefits, however, you have to distribute that amendment within 60 days. Interestingly, if the change in plan terms occurs mid-year and it affects the content of the SBC, you must provide 60 days notice in advance. And people sometimes get confused about these different requirements, so I decided to create a slide to compare the three. So now we're on to open enrollment. So what do you have to disclose at open enrollment? You have to disclose that summary plan description I've been talking about with the wrap document and all the things you're going to incorporate by reference. You have to distribute the summary of benefits and coverage, the SBC for the major medical benefits, and then the mandatory notices. And I've created a checklist here to remind you of what those various uh, disclosure requirements are and what the mandatory notices are. Um, some are not going to be applicable in all cases, but some will be applicable in all cases. So this is a little reference document for you for that purpose. Now, having talked about the documentation requirements, the next item is the reporting requirements. And basically that's the form 5500. That's the key part of this, followed by the summary annual report. Now the form 5500 must be filed by the plan administrator each year unless you fall under the small plan exemption. So you fall under the small plan exemption if you have fewer than 100 participants at the beginning of the plan year, and the plan is either fully insured, unfunded, or a combination of fully insured and unfunded. Note that, again, I said this earlier, this small plan exemption only applies to the Form 5500. It doesn't apply to the other ERISA mandates, which are in full effect for all ERISA plans, even if you've only got two participants in it. The Form 5500 must be filed by the last day of the seventh month after the end of the plan year. So for a calendar year plan, that would be uh, July 31st. Um, you have to file one 5500 for each plan and you start numbering the plans at plan 501 and the plan year is 12 months long. If you get audited by the DOL before they show up at your office, to look through the documents that you produce for them. They will look through your Form 5500 because you filed it with them and they've got it available. So that, so it's an important document. It's something they will study closely. There are hefty penalties for failure to find, file the Form 5500, but there's also a voluntary compliance plan. So if you find out, if you go into a new client, if, you, if you're hired by a new employer and you find out they haven't been filing their Form 5500s and they should have been, there is a program that you can use um, if you catch it before the Department of Labor does to file the back form 5500s and pay a much reduced uh, penalty in that case. The form 5500 must be filed followed two months later by the summary annual report, which is like a one paragraph document that summarizes the form 5500 and has to be distributed. I wanted to give you some examples of how the small plan exemption applies. Tennis Corp offers its employees a fully insured health plan. At the beginning of the plan year, the health plan had 70 active participants and three COBRA qualified beneficiaries. Tennis Corp qualifies for the small plan exemption and does not have to file a Form 5500 because it only has 73 participants as of the first day of the plan year. In another example, 
Beach Club offers its employees a fully insured health plan and a fully insured dental plan. At the beginning of the plan year, the health plan had 90 active participants and the dental plan had 70 active participants. 50 of the dental plan participants were also enrolled in the health plan and 20 were only enrolled in the dental plan. So that means we've got 110 unique participants. Does the plan small plan exemption apply? Well, it depends. If Beach Club treats the health plan as plan 501 and the dental plan is plan 502, neither plan has 100 or more participants. So both plans are subject to the small plan exemption and they don't have to file the form 5500. However, if Beach Club decides to combine the two benefits together and, um, and file just and have just one plan 501, they have together more than 100 unique participants. They have 110 and they're going to have to file a form 5500. One more example, Golf Corporation is a calendar year plan year. Golf Corporation offers its employees full three fully insured benefit options, health, and as of January 1, it had 150 participants, dental with 120 participants, and vision with 105 participants. Must Golf Corporation file a Form 5500? Yes, all three of its plans have more than 100 participants, so it must definitely file at least one Form 5500. If so, when? And that's going to be no later than July 31st because it's uh, that's set the end of the seventh month after the end of the plan year. And how many Form 5500s must Golf Corporation file? Well, that is actually up to Golf Corporation. It can decide. It can file one, it can file two, or it can file three. It depends on how, whether or not it decides to combine its benefits into one plan 501 or treat each different benefit option as a separate plan. So graphically, this is how it looks. If uh, Golf Corporation tries, decides to combine the health, dental, and vision into one plan 501, it only has one form 5500 to file. If it treats each insurance policy, each different benefit as a separate plan, then it's going to have to file three 5500s. Now, the Department of Labor says that without a wrap document, the Department of Labor's default position will be that the three separate contracts will be three separate plans. If Gulf Corporation wants to combine all of its benefits into one, it needs a wrap document. Otherwise, as I said, the Department of Labor will assume that it's three separate plans. And why that matters is it's three separate penalties if you haven't filed the Form 5500. This is a screenshot of what a 2019 Form 5500 looked like. I highlighted a couple of elements here. 1A, the name of the plan. This is where Golf Corporation would put down its name that it created, Golf Corporation Employee Welfare Benefit Plan. In column 2A, that's where you give the plan sponsor's name and address, Golf Corporation Inc. Uh, 1B is where you give the plan number. And 2B is where you give the employer EIN. So here's a screenshot of part of page two. Um, in 3A, you'd have to give the plan administrator's name and address if it was different from the plan sponsor. And column five, I wanted to identify, that's where you indicate how many participants you had on the first day of the plan year because that's relevant to the small plan exemption. And I wanted to go down to column 8B. 
and you'll see some codes there, 4A, 4D, 4E. What that is telling the Department of Labor is that you're offering health, 4A, dental, 4D, and vision, 4E. So there are codes for all sorts of different benefits, but that can also be helpful as if you as a producer are looking at uh, a new client's form 5500 or you're a new, to H you're a new HR employee looking at your employer's form 5500 and you can find out what kind of benefits they've had in the past year. So Natalie, we've got another poll here which I would like you to launch if you will. And Natalie has launched the poll so it is open, please cast your vote. Employer has fewer than 100 participants on the first day of the plan year in its fully insured plan. Check all that apply. One, employer is required to have a plan document. Two, employer is required to have an SPD. Three, employer is required to have a RAP document. Four, employer is required to file a Form 5500. And finally, none of the above. So I'll give you a few more seconds to complete the poll results and then we'll close things up. Natalie, if you'll close the poll, And I will tell you that the answer to this is uh, one, two, and three are the ones are the three that you should have checked. The employer is required to have a plan document, an SPD, and a wrap because they have fewer than 100 participants. Uh, they do not have to file a Form 5500. Natalie, what are our results in the poll? 27% chose employer is required to have a plan document. 24% chose employer is required to have an SPD. 26% chose employer is required to have a wrap document. 11% chose employer is required to file form 5500 and 12% chose none of the above. And Marilyn, I do wanna say that it only allowed one option. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I think we're getting close there. So it's, this is, work is a good review. So thank you very much. And let's move on with the foreign language requirements. I think these sometimes get lost in the shuffle here. And as I start off on this, I need to let you know there are two separate foreign language requirements. There's one set of rules for the SBD, and there's another set of rules for the SBC, which I'll walk you through. Now, the good news is that you do not have to translate the SPD, that 100 page, usually, that's usually how, about how long it is, that does not have to be translated. But in some cases, you might have to attach or affix a notice or a sticker to the outside of the SPD that is translated, that um, not only is it translated, but it offers assistance to your participants in that particular non-English language. Whether or not you have to do so is based on the makeup of your workforce. You, let's say a plan covers fewer than 100 participants at the beginning of the year, and 25% of those participants are literate in only in the same non-English language, you'd have to provide the translated notice. If your plan covers 100 or more participants at the beginning of the plan year, and either the lesser of 500 or 10% or more are literate only in the same non-English language, then you'd have to provide the notice. So it depends on the makeup of your workforce, how many participants you have overall, and how many of them um, are fluent in a language or literate in a, a language other than English. 
They do provide sample SPD language. This is what you would have to translate and put on the outside of your document um, in the event that you do have to provide that translated notice. So I've got some examples here. Tennis Club has one facility in Manhattan. 90 employees are covered by the health plan on the first day of the plan year. 30 of these participants speak only Spanish. In this case, Tennis Club must provide a notice in Spanish with its SPD because over 25% of its workforce is literate in the same non-English language. Uh, by the way, the location is not relevant under the SPD rules. That was a little bit of a red herring I threw in there. Next example, Yacht and Country Club has one facility in Clearwater, Florida. 200 employees are covered by the health plan on the first day of the plan year. 30 of these participants must uh, speak only Spanish. Yacht Club must provide a notice in Spanish with its SPD. In this case, it's the rules for over 100 and over 10% of its workforce is literate in the same non-English language, so the notice must be provided. Park Corporation maintains a health plan which covers 1,000 participants participants at the beginning of the plan year. 500 covered employees are literate only in Spanish, 101 are literate only in Vietnamese, and the remaining 399 are literate in English. Each of the 1,000 employees must receive an SPD in English containing an assistance notice in both Spanish and Vietnamese. And this example is adapted directly from the Department of Labor Regulations. In the final example, 6,000 park employees are covered by the health plan on the first day of the plan year. 300 of these participants speak only Spanish, so that's 5%. In this case, park does not have to provide a notice in Spanish with its SPD because it's under 10% and under 500. But, park, but then that next question is, but should park do so? Um, they want to, you want to make certain that your employees understand their benefits. You've got 300 individuals who will not understand uh, the English SPD, and so it may be a good idea, and I think in fact most employers do provide a notice as well as assistance in that non-English language. Now, as I said, the rules are a little bit different for the SBC. The SBC came along after, uh, later, it came along with the ACA as opposed to um, being part of the original ERISA rules back from 1974, so they developed a new standard for um, translations of um, documentation with the SBC. Um, under the rules, the SBC must be provided in a culturally and linguistically appropriate manner. What this means is that with your SBC, you must include a notice that tagline I showed you earlier on the screenshot of the SBC, that a translated version is available. And then you must provide the translated version upon request. So we've got some sample taglines have been provided. I showed you what those are. And so, and I also just want to highlight that unlike the SPD, a translated copy of the SBC might have to be produced. So you have to provide, um, you don't have to provide a translated SPD, but you might have to provide a translated SBC. Now, the, whether or not you have to provide the taglines and the translations for the SPD rules all have to do with the makeup of your workforce. It's different for the SBC. It's not based on the employer's workforce. It's based on the county population. Every few years, CMS, an agency within the Department of Health and Human Services, produces a list 
um, and I've got a link to it down there. They haven't updated it since 2016, where they identify all the counties throughout the country who, um, where they have a population of 10% or more that speak either Chinese, Spanish, Tagalog, or Navajo. If you are in a county where 10% um, or more of the population speaks one of those four languages, you have to translate the SPBC into one of those four languages. And if you're fully insured, the carrier will do it, but if you're self-funded, you will be responsible for this. So here's some examples of the SBC foreign language requirements. Club California with two facilities has a total of 90 employees participating in its health plan as of the first day of the plan year. Of these, 30 plan participants live in LA County, 30 live in Orange County, and 30 live in San Francisco County. Conclusion, and I realize you don't have that class list in front of you, so you'll have to take my word for it that Los Angeles and Orange County both have populations over 10% that speak Spanish, San Francisco 10, over 10% speak Chinese. Under this circumstance, upon request, Club California must provide an SBC translated into Spanish for LA and Orange County residents and into Chinese for San Francisco County residents. What about the SPD? We don't have enough facts because we don't know um, about the, uh, we know where the Club California employees live, but we don't know what languages they're literate in. Another example, Club Marin has a total of 90 employees participating in its health plan as of the first day of the plan year. All plan participants live in Marin County. 30 participants speak only Spanish. Now I'll tell you that under the class list, Marin County um, is not listed because uh, they don't have 10% of their population speaking one of the four languages identified. As a result of this, Club Marin does not have to provide a translated SPD to these participants. However, under the SPD rules, Club Marin would have to provide an SPD with that notice in Spanish because they have 30 participants that speak only Spanish. One final example. Country Club has a total of 90 employees participating in its health plan as of the first day of the plan year. All plan participants live in Los Angeles County. 30 participants speak only Spanish and 30 speak only Japanese. So club must provide a translated SPC to the Spanish speaking participants because they're in Los Angeles County. Club does not have to provide a translated SBC to the Japanese speaking participants, but it may voluntarily do so. This is because Japanese is not one of those four languages I specified. Under this SPD rules, notices in Japanese and Spanish must be provided with the SPD. With that, the all important topic about how to reach your audience. In other words, following the ERISA rules, how, you how do you distribute these SBD, SBC, and the annual notices we've been talking about? By the way, that MetLife survey um, gave some indication of uh, the channels employees prefer to receive information about their plan benefits from. And I just thought I would share that with you um, because I don't think it's surprising these days, but um, it probably just reinforces what you know and your practices. So what is the ERISA requirement about distributing all of these documents? You must use a method reasonably and calculated to ensure actual receipt. That means you can't just leave a copy sitting in the break room. Um, it, that won't be good enough. You have to make certain that you use a method calculated to ensure actual receipt. 
you can target your audience. Uh, depending on, you might use one methodology for office staff, another methodology for your delivery drivers, another methodology for your manufacturing plant. Um, when you design your distribution methodologies, do not forget about distributing open enrollment materials and other essential documents to those who are out on leave, to those who are on vacation, to those who are just too busy to show up, and to uh, COBRA qualified beneficiaries. If you fail to provide, uh, let's say, an updated SPD or an updated benefit summary disclosing a new benefit that the plan is offering, and someone doesn't show up to the meeting and doesn't make an election, the employer could potentially be held liable because the employer did not meet its communications obligation. What methodologies are permissible? By hand or in person, so you can hold an open enrollment meeting and hand out the materials there, in which case I suggest you get a sign-in sheet so you have a record of who got what when. You can send it out regular mail, first class being the best option. You also have the option of using the internet, email, or uh, old school DVDs, CDs, and flash drives. I've got more details on the next slide. Whatever you do, it's a good idea to track and maintain records so that anyone ever claims, hey, I didn't get that SPD, I didn't know I had to make that change, I didn't know I had to make that election, whatever it may be, you can establish um, what, you've, what you've offered and what you haven't. It'll also help you for ACA compliance purposes if you can establish that you offered the coverage to 95% or more of your full-time employees. Also consider these are the legal requirements, but don't necessarily stop here. Design an optimal communication strategy that meets your needs. Think about some of those things we talked about in the first few slides from the MetLife survey, where they talked about ease of use and understanding what their benefits are all about and so forth and ongoing annual ongoing communications throughout the year to remind employees, hey, you can get a free flu shot. Hey, did you check out that? Did you get your wellness exam? Those kinds of things. Now, a key issue, and it's been a key issue for a long time, are the electronic distribution rules. A lot of employers just go ahead and distribute electronically without recognizing that there are actual rules that govern this. Unfortunately, those rules were adopted in 2002, so they're old, especially when we're talking about electronics. Back in 2002, we weren't all carrying smartphones around with us. The world has changed. The Department of Labor regulations have not. Um, so that does create some challenges. The Department of Labor is aware of this. They have told us for a number of years they are working on updating them, but I think other priorities just keep getting them pushed to the back burner. So this is what we're working with, 2002 regulations. A key issue here is, can you just send out communications, send out the SPD electronically to absolutely everyone? And the answer is not necessarily. In some cases, you can do so without getting consent. In other cases, you will need consent from the individual. You do not need to get consent from employees who have access to the employer's electronic information system and it is an integral part of their duties. So if you have office staff and they're in the office all day, they all have email addresses, they all have computers, they're on their computer all day long, you can distribute to them electronically without getting their consent. But if you also have a manufacturing division and the, and the, and the people on the product line 
don't have email addresses, don't have access to computers, aren't all in the computer all day, you cannot distribute to them electronically unless you get their written consent to do so. So that's where um, targeting the appropriate audience may make a big difference depending on the, the makeup of your workforce and what their particular job duties are. You want to make, take, in addition to all of this, whether you have uh, consent or not, um, or <laughs> whether you need consent or not, once you are sending things out electronically, you need to take steps to ensure actual receipts. So if something bounces back, make um, find out you know what's going on there, follow up and send out uh, correct the email address, that kind of thing. Keep in mind a computer kiosk is not sufficient. So in my example with the manufacturing plant, um, those employees who don't have an email address or aren't on the computer all day as a part of an integral part of their duties, some employers want to set up a kiosk in, near the break room so that when they're on their break, they can just go and download the materials from the kiosk. That's not sufficient under the rules. When you do send out an email or a text or some other communication saying, hey, your SPD is available for you um, on the intranet system, you must do it in a communication that apprises the individual of the significance of the document um, so that it, it, uh, they don't just think it's, it's spam and they don't uh, prioritize it. And finally, you must provide a paper copy upon request. So here are some examples. Yacht Club has one facility in Seattle. 90 employers are covered by the health plan on the first day of the plan year. Yacht Club leaves a stack of SPDs and SBCs in the break room. Yacht Club has not complied with ERISA. Country Club has an administrative office in Los Angeles. All LA employees work on a computer on a daily basis and have a club email address. Club also has a golf course in Palm Springs. None of the course employees work on a computer as part of their day-to-day -day duties. Club sends all LA employees an email with an internet link to the health plan's SPD. Club distributes to the Palm Springs employees a written notice explaining that the SPD is available online and that a central computer is available in the break room so employees can access it. It would appear that Club has satisfied ERISA for the LA employees, but it is not done so for the Palm Springs employees. So I've gone a, a couple of minutes over. I beg your indulgence for about five more minutes to wrap up my open enrollment segment here. Um, just want to remind you of some open enrollment best practices. What you must do in order to satisfy ERISA. Distribute open enrollment packages, packets, including the SPD, the SBC, and the mandatory notices. Remember that SPD includes the wrap documents, the contribution schedules, et cetera. Satisfy any foreign language requirements for the SPD or the SBC that might apply to your employees. Follow distribution rules to ensure you reach everyone, and this is important. Do not forget about those who are out on leave, who are out of the office that day, who are COBRA qualified beneficiaries. They are also entitled to notice. Keep records of who you distributed to, what you distributed, how you did it, and when. And keep records of elections and waivers. I wasn't always um, uh, so encouraging of, well, I in the past, years prior, I didn't, uh, you didn't necessarily have to have waivers, but I think waivers are increasingly important, especially with regard to the ACA 4980H penalties. So in addition to the uh, election forms, I think waivers are a very, very good idea and you should probably have them for anyone who doesn't sign up for coverage. 
few items to think about as part of your communication strategy when you're preparing for open enrollment is communicate benefit options available to employees and how they might impact them, especially, especially any significant plan changes. Communicate eligibility and contribution requirements so employees understand what they are and understand the consequences of their decision. Maybe your um, HMO is the cheapest option available, but it might not be the best one for all employees, depending on their circumstances. You can provide them with examples of that. Communicate the value of the benefit package. Highlight important or overlooked benefits, such as free preventive care, using in-network providers and generics, and so forth. And explain that, and this I have to uh, emphasize this one here, because I get a lot of questions about cafeteria plan mid-year uh, enrollment changes. Explain that benefit selections cannot be changed mid-year if you have a cafeteria plan unless the employee experiences a special enrollment event or you have a qualifying status change. And here's our final poll, Natalie. If you'll launch it, please. The poll is open. For the 2021 plan year, how frequently are you conducting open enrollment meetings via video conferencing? Very often, often, about half the time, rarely or never. And I'll give you a few more minutes to put your vote in. And I appreciate you allowing me to go over a few minutes. I see people are not dropping off, so I do appreciate that. I'm gonna wrap this up in just like two minutes and then take questions. So can we close out the poll, Natalie, and share the results? The results are 28% chose often, 16, I'm sorry, 31% chose very often, 16% voted about half the time, 14% voted rarely, and 11% chose never. That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought never, but it all depends on what the workforce is, how the workforce is made up. So thank you very much for responding to that. Just a few tips and traps I wanted to mention. Opportunities for miscommunication. Make certain when you're preparing your wrap documents, your plan document, SPD and SBC, that all of the terms and conditions match. Don't have eligibility be 30 hours in one document and 20 in another. Don't have the waiting period 30 days in one and first of the month after 30 days in another. So make certain that the plan terms match up. Um, make certain that what any benefit terms you're explaining in the open enrollment presentation also match. And here's another one that I do see unfortunately sometime occur. Make certain that if there are benefit terms um, in other workplace materials, I see this most often in the employee handbook, but it could also crop up in job descriptions or employment contracts or the website that they match. Now the producer probably doesn't have a lot of control over this, but it's something to remind the HR department that you wanna make certain that, for example, the handbook doesn't say, you know, you're eligible for benefits after 20 hours and then the SPD says 30 hours. Or let's say the handbook says, if you take an unpaid sabbatical for six months, we'll keep you on the health plan, only to find out the SPD says something very different. Those are the kinds of issues that you can run into that become a, can become a bit of a nightmare. Uh, another opportunity for miscommunication is that plan materials never reach the participant and beneficiary or supervisors trying to be very helpful miscommunicate plan terms. Uh, supervisors should be advised that the HR uh, staff should be the sole point of contact on benefit issues. 
So I mentioned earlier, I wasn't going to go through the uh, resources because I think they're self-explanatory, but they are here available for your use. Some planning deadlines going ahead, an open enrollment checklist with regard to open enrollment goals. And with that, Natalie, do we have any questions? Yes, we have a ton of them, actually. Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if the we can't one... get to any, we will get to you after the fact. Okay, sounds good. Um, the first one says, if ERISA is the, pro is the employer responsibility, then what legal implications or consequences are there to brokers who provide ERISA documents to the employer? Well, that's a good question. Um, what I advise my uh, clients is your primary obligation, your primary responsibility is to put in place um, an insurance, insurance coverage for them. To the extent you take on additional functions, then you're responsible for making certain that you do so competently um, and not negligently. So if you say, and I'll take an extreme example, um, and I don't recommend any of you do this, but if you were to say to someone, I'll make sure you're fully compliant with everything, well, now you're on the hook to make sure they're fully compliant with everything. If you're pl providing plan documentation to your clients um, as a value-added service, one of the things you can do is recommend that um, and say that these are in draft form only, recommend that they have them reviewed by their own legal counsel and put the onus on them to make certain that the documents are perfected. Um, you can also put uh, have disclaimers um, if you have a service agreement. A lot of brokers just have a broker of record letter, but you could also have a service agreement where you outline the terms and conditions under which both parties are operated and what you understand to be um, your responsibilities versus their responsibilities. Next question. Is the producing and generating of ERISA required documents by the broker overstepping the boundaries of assisting and facilitating compliance? Well, I think I kind of answered that in my last question. So, um, you, you're, if you're not legal, you know, you're your responsibility as an insurance broker is to um, obtain coverage for your clients under the terms and conditions which they specify. Um, can you help with facilitating obtaining the documentation? Many, many brokers do. You can be, um, a, you can assist them with that process. Um, ultimately, my recommendation is you leave it up to them. However, you provide disclaimers and you leave it up to them uh, to ensure that they. Um, they fulfill their legal requirements, they sign off on the documents that their legal counsel signs off on the documents. Um, as I mentioned during the course of the presentation, if you look at your errors and emissions policy, it probably doesn't cover ERISA compliance. So um, you can provide these services, but there is some risks when you provide these services. I know there's an impetus to provide the services because many of your competitors do. Another way that you could do this is to refer your clients out to various service providers, provide them with a list and say, you can check out these various service providers, um, PPAs, for example, who provide this documentation. That's another option available to you. Next question. What about charter schools? Are they subject to ERISA? My understanding is that they're not. And it depends. That's unfortunately, that's the answer. Um, whether state and local government plans are not subject to ERISA, private employers are subject to ERISA. So it comes down to is a charter school, uh, a st state and local government 
entity or is it a private enterprise? And um, the Department of Labor has not explicitly answered that. So it's going to be a facts and circumstances test based on each separate charter school situation. Next question. Is there an employer group size that exempts employers from ERISA, such as three employees? Uh, no. Uh, it might be, you know, I'd have to double check that. There might be something. I think if you've got so much as one employee, there was there's an exemption, I believe, for retiree plans, but I don't think it applies. You know what? I will double check that, but I think the answer to that is going to be no. Health share programs, how are they related or are they related to any of these and how are they governed in terms of compliance? I'm not actually familiar with health share programs. I've heard of them. I've not been involved in them. Um, if I can, when I respond to the FAQs, gather any information, I will try to, but, it, uh, but uh, um, it's not something that I, I tend to come across in my practice. Anthem has indicated that they do not have to provide SBCs to plan participants or legacy grandfather plans. Is that correct? I have to check to see whether or not uh, SBCs apply to grandfather plans. I, I have to reconfirm. I, I, <laughs> uh, there are so few grandfather plans out there. I don't get that question very often, and I haven't looked at the rules in a while. So I will double check that and respond to that in the FAQs. Does insurers distribute SBC to employees? Typically, I believe they do not. I believe that their obligation is to distribute the SBC to the employer and then the employer distributes the SBC to the participants. Is it mandatory to provide on the wrap document the employee contribution or could they leave it blank? You know, that's very interesting. That's kind of an interesting question. The, the, you have to communicate to the employees what the contributions are. Whether or not you have to update the uh, wrap document every single year with a new amount is a question that um, one could debate. Um, but you definitely do want to distribute a contribution schedule. You'll need that for 4980H compliance potentially as well. So you're going to want to distribute a contribution schedule um, either by incorporating that language into the SPD or as a standalone document. Is there a minimum of employees that the employer has that ERISA applies to? We had that question earlier and I'm gonna say I don't believe so, but I'm gonna double check it. Please repeat the due date used for the distribution of SPD. Is it renewal or calendar year? Oh, um, there is a chart, if you can see it on the screen there. So new participants within 90 days, new plans within 120 days. Um, basically, though, usually you're, you're distributing the SPD with the, at the open enrollment process. That's the typical procedure to use. Are participants defined as employees, excluding the dependents? Um, usually a participant, yes. The, the answer to that is yes. Usually a participant is an employee. Um, a dependent who is enrolled in the plan is usually referred to as a beneficiary. Although you'll see in some plan documents, they might use the word participants globally. Otherwise, 
the language just gets um, in the plan document just gets too convoluted and too lengthy. I am confused regarding SBC and foreign language requirements. Are they only required upon request or when meeting the percentages they have to be distributed? Distributed. That's a good question. Uh, these are all good questions. So um, the taglines need to be provided based on county um, populations. And then the translated ones, actually distributing a translated SBC is upon request. Ex-employees on COBRA would no longer have access to the employer's electronic info into the system. Is that correct? That generally would be correct. And so COBRA qualified beneficiaries usually, um, usually electronic distribution to COBRA qualified beneficiaries won't work. So um, unless you get their consent, and there are rules about getting consent, um, but unless you get their consent, um, you're going to have to come up with a different methodology for distributing to COVID-qualified beneficiaries, either in person or generally by first-class mail. If an employer offers a non-insurance health plan benefit, like healthcare sharing ministries or AFLAC, then are they required to comply with ERISA? I'm not that familiar with healthcare sharing ministries. I, I know generally what they are, but my clients haven't been offering them. So I'm not that familiar with um, the legal ins and outs of them. With, with regard to AFLEC, AFLEC policies are often set up as voluntary benefits. They're set up as individual plans, not group plans. And if they follow that voluntary safe harbor that I set up before, they are not subject to ERISA. So they would then not be subject to the ERISA distribution requirements. Um, if they're not set up as a voluntary plan, if they're set up as a group plan, then they uh, would be, and, and uh, they don't meet the voluntary safe harbor, then they would be, uh, in many cases, uh, ERISA benefits and you'd have to incorporate them into the wrap documents and meet the ERISA requirements. How do you handle effective dates for health insurance for employees who are hired mid-month if the first date of benefits is to be 30 days after hiring? Most plans now start and end with the first and or last day of the month. Yeah, I actually was covered by a plan that started in the middle of the month. It was kind of a pain in the, in the neck when you dropped coverage and then you had to go looking for other plans because they didn't start in the middle of the month. Um, I think then what it does is it becomes um, a description of, um, uh, I, I think you just modify your, your waiting periods then and you might do first of the month after uh, date of hire or um, first of the month after date of hire or 30 days, something along that line, I, I, uh, you would have to just change the language up so that it would either be, you know, in your example of the, someone hired on the 15th, um, they would be either start at the first of the next month or in 45 days, the start of the month afterwards. And the last question before I have some housekeeping. Um... Can I just, can I add something, Natalie? Um, keep in mind, waiting periods under the Affordable Care Act can't be longer than 90 days. So as long as you set up a waiting period that's within 90 days, you're fine. I'm sorry, so go ahead. No worries. Um, the last question before I have a couple of last keeping house minute um, rules um, is, is an MLR distribution required to employees or can the employer keep it? 
most of the time, the employer can't keep all of it. That's a good question. Um, and that certainly is an issue that will come up this later this year. Um, so a uh, medical loss ratio rebate um, generally must be shared with the employees. The way the rules work is um, if the employees contribute, at least in part, to the cost of coverage, and that's generally the case, either they're contributing a portion for self-only coverage or they're, con they're contributing for family coverage, something along that line, then that portion that they are contributing is considered plan assets under ERISA. And the employer can't keep the plan, the a portion of the rebate that's attributed to plan assets. If the employer paid 100% of employee contributions and 100% of dependent contributions, the employer could keep the entire rebate. But so long as the employees are contributing a portion, the employer must rebate to the employees uh, a proportion as well. Okay, perfect. That's all of our questions. Um, I do want to mention two things. We did get a lot of requests for the presentation um, and the recording. That will come from me, Natalie Cole, so please be on the lookout for an email from me. It will be sent within two to, I'm sorry, within 24 to 48 hours. Um, I'll send you a copy of the slides and the recording. Also, if you have any questions regarding um, poll questions, participation, CE credits, anything, go ahead and send me an email directly. My email address is Natalie and a-T-A-L-I-E-C at dickersons-group.com with any of your questions. But if, if it is specific about ERISA, not me, I am not the expert, but Miss Marilyn Monaghan. <laughs> and of course, um, you see here how to contact her. Um, that being said, once again, thank you for joining us. We're going to post a link to this webinar on our website within the next 24 hours. And of course, if you have any questions um, or any issues, feel free to contact us in the multiple ways that I've stated. Um, but that being said, Ms. Marilyn Monaghan, thank you for this amazing presentation. And thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks.